Skeleton Dance, played by the Edison Concert Band. Chris Est ist a queen. When? Chris Est ist a queen. When? <laughs> oh, where did you spring from? And, um, <laughs> I, well, I'm a, I, I, I'm a little rusty in my Latin, but, but I, I, I think it reads, um, Who is this who is coming? <laughs> Hello. Hello and welcome to our special Halloween edition of Batlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us back in 1962, somewhere in the home counties. We're standing in the hallway of a large, cold Edwardian house. The heavily leaded windows are too high to add much in the way of light. The huge stone fireplaces are empty and the yawning expanse of pine wall panels and floorboards fills the air with the joyless odour of polish. A large black and white cat with lemony eyes waddles past, smelling strongly of fish and foreboding. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and we're joined today once again by our two Halloween familiars, <laughs> our revenants, Laura Varnum, and Andrew Mayle. Hooray! What, everyone? Hooray! Hello, guys. It's the what woman. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I'm back. Prof. Laura Varnum, hello, Prof. Returns for her third Halloween backlisted after episode 104 on The Breaking Point by Daphne du Maurier and episode 123 on Beowulf, one of our most popular episodes ever. Yay! She is a literary critic and lecturer in medieval literature at University College, Oxford. She has a long-standing interest in women writers, from the medieval mystic Marjorie Kemp to Daphne du Maurier, and now, as a result of this episode of Backlisted, Elizabeth Jane Howard. That's lucky. Her co-edited book of academic essays on Kemp is out next month, and she has recently published some of her poetry inspired by the women of Beowulf. Thank you for having me. It's really lovely to be reunited with you and Andrew today because our other guest, chained like a ghost in a wishing well to the Halloween editions of Backlisted, <laughs> one for the teenagers there, Mitch, well done, um, is Andrew Mail. Thank you very much. Lovely to be back. Lovely to have you, Andrew. Welcome back for his sixth Halloween episode of Backlisted. As well as Du Maurier and Beowulf, he appeared on the very first of these specials, number 24 on Robert Aikman, number 52 on Shirley Jackson, and number 78 on Edith Wharton, plus a couple of relatively non-spooky episodes, number 10 on Raymond Chandler, that is quite a spooky episode, and number 114 on uh, The Inheritors by William Golding. Only Lissa Evans has appeared on more episodes of Backlisted. And when he's not preparing for Batlisted, he writes about music for Mojo magazine and books and TV for the Sunday Times, where uh, I commend him for his recent review of Joshua Ferris's novel, A Calling for Charlie Barnes, which I thought was absolutely wonderful and seems already to be yeah, disappearing. Such a shame. Uh, and not getting any attention. But your review was terrific, and I agree with uh, lots of things you said in your review. So, uh, listeners, if you can find Andrew's review, find it, and then 
um, trust him on uh, how good that novel is anyway. And Andrew regularly clogs up Twitter with photos of his pets, Nico and Klaus. Are they with us today? They will be. Um, Nico was silenced with the juicy bone earlier in the manner of, in the manner of Auden. Um, and I think Klaus <laughs> is just out about, but they'll be here. Andrew is currently working on a 1,500-word book proposal and hopes to be finished by next year. <laughs> That's the thing about those 1,500 words. No, I'm sure once I get that done, it'll be plain sailing. Mitch, <laughs> over to you. At this point in the introduction, we usually tell you a little more about the scenario or the plot of the book we'll be discussing. Not today. The less you know about Elizabeth Jane Howard's novel Something in Disguise going in, the more you'll get out of it. Instead, we're grabbing flaming torches, and as thunder rumbles and rain lashes down, the waves breaking far below, we're lighting a string of beacons along a ragged clifftop. Tongues of fire spelling out in letters 30 feet high. Spoilers! It is impossible to talk about this particular novel and this strand of Elizabeth Jane Howard's work without revealing details of what happens in them. So feel free to stop listening at this point. Turn to the podcast after you've read the book or keep listening and burn along with us. Uh, also, if you do pause this episode now, it still counts on our listening figures. <laughs> <laughs> so if you come back and start again on this episode, potentially we double up on the number of downloads. So there's all sorts of reasons you could help us out by doing that and yourselves. I'm just going to say a bit about what we want to do with this episode. It's slightly unusual. You know, there are several points over the course of the history of Batlisted where we could have done Elizabeth Jane Howard before. And you could think about her in terms of, well, it struck us there are three different ways you could approach Elizabeth Jane Howard's work. The first way would be to think of her as the author of neglected literary novels from early in her career, from the 1950s, such as The Beautiful Visit or The Long View. The Long View in particular has a great um, weight of cultural... Uh, critical support behind it and is a terrific novel. Um, so you could look at Elizabeth Jane Howard that way, or you could see Elizabeth Jane Howard as uh, she became later in her career the author of the Cazalet Chronicles, which is a best selling sequence of five novels in total, four of them in the early 1990s The Light Years, Marking Time, Confusion, and Casting Off. And then she returned, the last novel she wrote was all change in uh, 2013 when she was in her late 80s and that would be very interesting to do as well but today because it's a halloween episode and because something in disguise has as john just said we won't need to keep saying spoilers will we is full of darkness <laughs> after it seems initially that it won't be we thought it would be interesting to approach elizabeth jane howard's work from a third angle which is the little discussed, and when I say little discussed, probably hardly ever discussed strand of her work as an author of the uncanny ghost stories, horror stories, works of psychological torture. And specifically, I'm giving you a reading list. So if you do go away, it might be weeks before you get back to this episode. But we, we want to concentrate on a specific strand of Elizabeth Jane Howard's work, which takes in not just something in disguise, her fifth novel from 1969, but also the volume of short stories she co-authored with Robert Aitman, which was published in 1951, called We Are For The Dark. The novel she wrote in 1972, called Odd Girl Out, a collection of short stories, especially the title story, Mr. Wrong, 
which was published in 1975. And then fast forwarding to 1999, her fictionalized account of a traumatic event that happened to her in real life. Um, That novel is called Falling. And we all feel there's a thread that runs through all those books, which is perhaps most fully expressed in Something in Disguise, but it's there running all the way through her work and uh, hasn't been much noticed before. So anyway, we hope you enjoy this trip through this particular, I don't know what we call it, Elizabeth Jane horror. I don't know. But anyway, so that's what we're doing today. Um, But before we get on to that, John, what have you been reading this week? Um, I've been reading, I think, appropriate for the season, a wonderful anthology called Women's Weird, Strange Stories by Women, 1890 to 1940, edited by Melissa Edmondson and published by the excellent Handheld Press, who've really kind of nailed, I think, the the, the market in, in these brilliant um, anthologies, particularly in, in the, this area of weird writing. They've done sci-fi and they've done supernatural, but the, the, the weird anthologies... This one in particular, I think, is kind of revelatory. It is, I suppose, the people who like M.R. James or Arthur Machen are going to love this book. What's amazing to me is that there are, there are so many there are so many writers, women writers in it that I'd never heard of before, and they're so good. These stories are so good. They're ghost stories. There are some, uh, I mean classic kind of uh, writers in here who you, you might have heard of. You've, everybody's heard of E. Nesbitt. There's a great ghost story by E. Nesbitt. There's an amazing uh, ghost story by Mary Butts. But there's also weird. Uh, Eleanor Mordant writes a, a story in here called Hodge, which is a bit like a kind of really creepy version of Stig in the Dump about a, pers- about, about a survivor from a, a previous prehistoric era. There's a, there's a, there's a funny, very witty story um, uh, by Marjorie Lawrence, another gr- discovery called The Haunted Saucepan, set in St. James's. But they, they have that kind of Edwardian feel to them. But because they're written by women, it makes a difference in terms of the, your, your, the characters and what the characters feel. Um, I'm just going to read you the start from one of the ones I really, really loved by Mary Chumley. This was written in 1890, and Mary Chumley was the sort of a daughter of a clergyman and you know published a few novels and stories lived um and died in, in 1925 but this book she was accused of plagiarizing a male vampire novelist and also often gets compared to mr james but she was actually writing this story before mr james had written the stories the reason i like it is it's set in a church crypt which, of course, so many of those M.R. James stories are. And it's also set in Yorkshire. It has elements of the, the woman in black travelling up on train into a sort of Yorkshire. It has elements of our favourite J.L. Carr, Month in a Country, because, the as you'll see, the main character is somebody who is interested in church wall paintings. Anyway, it's a beautiful bit of work, wonderful stories throughout. Uh, one other I'll draw your attention to by uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, the author of The Yellow Wallpaper. It's a really, really uh, strong story about the, called The Giant Wisteria, really creepy, perfect collection for Halloween. I'll give you the beginning of Let Loose by Mary Chumley very quickly. Some years ago, I took up architecture and made a tour through Holland, studying the buildings of that interesting country. I was not then aware that it is not enough to take up art. Art must take you up too. I never doubted but that my passing enthusiasm for her would be returned. When I discovered that she was a stern mistress who did not immediately respond to my attentions, 
I naturally transferred them to another shrine. There are other things in the world besides art. I am now a landscape gardener. But at the time of which I write, I was engaged in a violent flirtation with architecture. I had one companion on this expedition who has since become one of the leading architects of the day. He was a thin, determined-looking man with a screwed-up face and a heavy jaw, slow of speech, and absorbed in his work to a degree which I quickly found tiresome. He was possessed of a certain quiet power of overcoming obstacles which I've rarely seen equalled. He has since become my brother-in-law, so I ought to know, for my parents did not much like him and opposed the marriage, and my sister did not like him at all and refused him over and over again, but nevertheless he eventually married her. I have thought since that one of his reasons for choosing me as his travelling companion on this occasion was because he was getting up steam for what he subsequently termed an alliance with my family, but the idea never entered my head at the time. A more careless man as to dress I have rarely met, and yet, in all the heat of July in Holland, I noticed that he never appeared without a high starched collar, which not even hadn't fashion to commend it at the time. I often chaffed him about these splendid collars and asked why he wore them, but without eliciting any response. One evening, as we were walking back to our lodgings in Middleburg, I attacked him for about the thirtieth time on the subject. Why on earth do you wear them? I said. You have, I believe, asked me that question many times, he replied, in his slow, precise utterance, but always on occasions when I was occupied. I am now at leisure and I will tell you. And he did. I have put down what he said as nearly in his own words as I can remember them. Dun, dun, dun. Great little story. Um, that's Mary Chumley. That's the first volume of several volumes that Handheld have done. Isn't yes. It? So there's Women's Weird, which is that one. There's a, there's a second volume of that, which was published last year. There's another one called British Weird. Is that right? British Weird, which is – that I mean, I have to say, uh, uh, Kate MacDonald and, and Handheld are – I mean, they, they, these are the beautifully edited, really nicely produced um, paperbacks. And it's an it's amazing collection. I'm really, really pleased I, I found the time to read it. Andy, what have you been reading? I've been reading a novel called Seasonal Associate by Heike Geisler, the German novelist Heike Geisler, translated by Katie Derbyshire and published by Semiotext in the US and the UK in 2018, but the, the book was originally published in Germany in 2014. And this is a surprisingly rare novel, considering the situation it describes. In 2010, Heike Geisler, because she needed the money, got a job at an Amazon warehouse facility outside Leipzig. And this is her account of what it was like and how, as a novelist, it made her feel. Um, now, you could read this novel as an expose, though if you were seeking to read it as an expose, I don't think you would learn many things you didn't already know, certainly by this point in 2021. I saw this book recommended by both Sally Rooney and Miriam Taves because what it's really about is not so much a book about working for Amazon. It's a book about not the dignity of labour, but the indignity of labour in the late capitalist system. That sounds fun, doesn't it? I've made that sound like an absolute <laughs> page turner. Um, 
But I really, really enjoyed this book and I like being um, pushed around by it a bit. It's not particularly likeable. She doesn't waste much time sucking up to the reader at any point. <laughs> you, you join her on the warehouse floor and are expected to, to get on with it. But that feels appropriate to me. And it really made me think about that tension of how we think of ourselves in relation to work. How does what we do for money or for fulfillment differ from who we are? Does it differ from who we are? If you work for a fulfillment hub, are you a fulfillment hub? <laughs> or are we kidding ourselves? If I'm a writer who takes a job at Amazon, or if I'm a writer who takes a job as a grave digger, say, given this is Halloween, am I in reality a writer or am I a grave digger in denial? <laughs> what, what am I and who am I? And how does what I do for money, digging graves, interact with what I would like to do for money, writing books? Well, that's kind of what Heike Geisler's seasonal associate is about. And in this case, she's got a job working for Amazon. She's a novelist. How does she, can she reach a settlement between how she thinks of herself and what she does? So I'm just going to read you a little bit from chapter four of Seasonal Associate, and this will give you just a flavour. So she's been inducted to the warehouse in Leipzig. She's been packing up various things like dog toys and raincoats, and she's just been moved into the book department. Uh, so this, is re this records her feelings about being closer to the source of what she would like to be doing and yet frustratingly far away. I read an essay by Claudia Friedrich Seidel, which begins with an admission. Yes, she writes, I too buy my books from Amazon.com. Yes, I say, I too buy my books from Amazon. I buy the books there that I can't get elsewhere. What I don't buy from Amazon is books or other things I can get elsewhere, not even if they're cheaper there or delivered more quickly. A few days before, I held a far too vehement lecture at my mother's kitchen table, preaching that one doesn't necessarily have to buy things one wants from the cheapest source. I said there was no order and no law that you have to choose the cheapest offer. My mother looked at me as though checking whether I meant it seriously, first of all, and secondly, whether I might have turned into a rich woman overnight, someone who could afford to say such things. She goes on, so she gets moved on to the... Uh, she gets moved on to the, the, in the book packaging department, right? It takes a while before you get deployed in the book section, which incidentally is mainly reserved for women, like reading novels once was. When you come to enter the myriads of books into the system, you might be glad of it or you might not. We'll see when the time comes. I was always glad at any rate to stand beside the gigantic book boxes and enter the books in the system. I looked at the books and knew what kind of thing Germans buy. So, for example, I knew Germans like to buy the humorous health writer Eckhart von Hauschhersen because I had a hundred copies of Eckhart von Hauschhersen's face on my desk <laughs> and put them in a yellow crate. And I found out there really are an incredible number of vampire novels, something, <laughs> something I could have guessed beforehand but wouldn't have thought possible. I was glad of the books every day at Amazon, but one day I found myself with a book in my hands written by a man I know, formerly a good friend of mine. I got a shock. It was an absolutely unexpected encounter between him 
and me. There, in the dispatch hall, where I placed approximately 40 of his books in the crate for pre-ordered products, meaning I knew what people would read and what they considered a good Christmas gift, it was as if I were the chambermaid and he were the guest. It was as if we were showing our true faces. The man is part of the world in which a person can feed a wife and child by working a job he enjoys. With his book in my hands, I didn't want to think much, and I didn't think much. I thought, I bet he has time right now to think about his next work. It would have to be called a work, and he'd have to be called a successful writer. Gosh. Ooh. That's good, isn't it? That's very good. So I... I recommend seasonal associates by Heike Geisler on this Halloween episode (laughs) of backlisted for its depiction of contemporary dread and loathing. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. Did you recognise that tune? No. Anyone? Uh, no. no. It was the musician Nikos Achilles's setting of Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's very good. Oh, I was not making no. that connection at all. The Devil's Interval you heard there at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, yeah, precisely, right? I was thinking some sort of 70s film. but uh, We'll put a link to that. Uh, magnificent orchestral arrangement of Black Sabbath on the website for people to listen to. Uh, so before we get on to talking about Something in Disguise by Elizabeth Jane Howard, I thought it might be really useful to do a callback to uh, five years ago and the episode of Backlist about Robert Aikman. And I wondered if, Andrew, you could just give us an introduction to Elizabeth Jane Howard's work with Robert Aikman on her collection, on their collection, forgive me, We Are For The Dark, which was published in 1951. Elizabeth Jane Howard met Aikman and his wife, Ray, um, through literary friends in the early 50s. She was trying to finish her first novel, The Beautiful Visit, and they um, ran a small literary agency and they um, agreed to help her. Elizabeth Jane Howard's marriage to her first husband, uh, the conservationist Peter Scott, was on the rocks. And Aikman started to romance her. And it's interesting how she describes this in terms of what we'll be saying about something in disguise. She basically, she says she initially found him supercilious patronising and unprepossessing. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Love's young dream. Yeah. And he told her that he loved her. And she has wrote on a couple of occasions that she had what she called a great hunger to be loved and to be in love. So Robert and Ray, who were in a kind of marriage of convenience, he'd married Ray to, so that she wasn't called up into the army and he was a conscientious objector. So they pulled her, um, Elizabeth Jane Howard, into their world of the arts, of like, you know, opera and the theatre. 
but also their belief that the cultural world was in decline, that everything was rotting and 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 that the, you know better days were behind them and and no good would come of the future. And that is kind of what caused them both to form the um Inland Waterways Association and start rebuilding the canals and making them sort of uh you know useful for sort of um holidays and sort of pleasure boating and all that kind of stuff and she worked as a secretary we should make the point she was really young right she's in her early 20s yeah incredibly young in her early 20s yeah i meant to say that yeah so she's incredibly young and she's already in her first kind of she's already sort of thinking of divorce from her first husband so she was flattered by him and flattered that he would put so much faith in her he made her the secretary of the inland waterways association and helped her get her first novel published, The Beautiful Visit. So, and then Aikman kind of uses her and basically says, I've got these unpublished ghost stories I've been writing. And he was basically writing them because another member of the Inland Waterways Association, LTC Rolt, had been writing ghost stories. Never, this, this story <laughs> never gets any more normal. That's, that's, it's so weird. It doesn't, doesn't, absolutely not. And the thing is that Rolt also wrote ghost stories set within the modern industrial world. So when we talk about Three Miles Up and this kind of, you know, novel set, ghost stories set around trains and trams and, and, and sort of, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So Aitman's writing these unpublished stories and basically says to EJH, can you help me get them published? And so she goes to her publisher at Cape and, set, and proposes this book where she writes three stories. And he writes three stories. And the three stories that he wrote were The Trains, The Insufficient Answer, and The View. And the three that she wrote were Perfect Love, Left Luggage, and a short story called Three Miles Up, which I think anyone who's ever read it would agree is one of the great modern classics of uh, the, one of the greatest British ghost stories ever written. Laura, what did you make of We Are For The Dark? Absolutely magnificent. Um, I think Three Miles Up is definitely one of the best ghost stories, if not one of the best short stories I've ever read. Um, and I, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the collection as a whole was the way in which you've got these hauntings that are all about movement and about being on the move and being mobile, um, uh, the, the trains and the canals and and something that's not not perhaps the, the sort of traditional ghost story when you're, you know, you're in a kind of gothic house setting and there's some of that going on in something in disguise. Um, but I, I thought they were fantastic. And I thought that um, Jane's ones had a, had a kind of cool clarity about them, dis- despite the, the ambiguity and the things that are left uh, to your imagination at the end. I, I felt that you could tell the difference between the two. So three miles up, you can get to read quite easily. If you can find a, a copy of, um, it's in a lot of anthologies, if you can find a copy of Elizabeth Jane Howard's collection, Mr. Wrong. Which is a picador, in, imprinted picador. It's in there back. too, yeah. yeah. There's, there's just a, a couple of sentences from three miles up um, that I'd like to read that's her um, description of the mind that I, I just felt really summed up 
the way in which she's approaching these questions of sort of psychological breakdown. So this is where they're in the canal boat. While John snored, Clifford had lain distraught, his resentment and despair circling around John and then touching his own smallest and most random thoughts until his mind found no refuge and he was left divided from it, hostile and afraid, watching it in terror racing on in the dark like some malignant machine utterly out of his control. And in that respect, there is a link, fascinating link, between Three Miles Up, written in 1951, and Falling, written in 1999. Those are clearly the work of the same writer all those years apart. But there's also a link with something in disguise, isn't there? And the the, get, the mind games that are played on May by uh, Dr. Seagull. Oh, yes, you're quite right. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, which, which is kind of, that was kind of after she got caught up in the Uspensky Society, didn't she, Elizabeth Jane Howard, which is kind of, I think, one of the disciples of Gurdjieff and um, writes that into something in disguise that where there's this bit, which we'll get into later, but the bit where things are starting to collapse and she's starting, she's playing all these horrible mind games on herself inspired by the terrible Dr. Seedon. Before we move on, um, Andrew, you were saying to me earlier something about the, there's there's three characters in Three Miles Up, aren't there? And uh, What's the female character called? The female character is called Sharon. And now Elizabeth Jane Howard claimed this wasn't the case, but what what does that make us think of? Sharon, who is Laura. The ferryman, the ferryman who ferries uh, the souls to Hades uh, in classical mythology. Um, Both Andrew and I independently thought that this was the case and then picked up all sorts of clues about uh, what really might be going on when John and Clifford take that uh, strangely ruined branch of the canal. Yes, because she talk. There's a bit, isn't there, where she talks. She quite happily talks about the um, the burnings, the burn, the red and burning sky. Well, she's quite at ease in that world. And then, as everyone is uh, getting progressively colder and freezing, it doesn't really seem to affect her. It's not that you haven't seen that done before in stories, but I don't think I've ever seen it, ever read it done as well and as convincingly and. And even though you kind of know what's going on, the ending when it comes is still, yeah. oof, I mean, it's, it's, it's a magnificent oh, it's her- bit of writing. Terrific, isn't it? We're going to hear now a very, um, <laughs> this is Elizabeth Jane Howard on the BBC television programme Monitor in 1964. And I want you to bear in mind when you hear this, that this, is, this was recorded five years before she wrote Something in Disguise. And she is about 40 years old. And as we know, she had 50 years of her career to run after this interview. And here she is, she's interviewing here, Evelyn Waugh. Mr Waugh, you were 60 in October. Do you regard your life's work as over? Oh, I wish I could say so. But use any other profession on reaching retiring age. But as you'll find when you get to my age, writers have to go on and on till they drop. Three score and ten used to be a proper span. Now it may be four score and ten. These awful doctors keep on going. Years and years and years. I'd got longevity with the utmost horror. Do you think that an aged novelist suffers any particular impediments in well, his work? Uh, to compare small things with great, if you compare me with 
any of the well-known novelists, like, say, Dickens, uh, all their comic and inventive work was over long before they reached my age. It's a very, very rare thing to be able to go on. Hmm. Well, in, in uh, Vile Bodies, I think it is, you say, if the young knew and the old could, well, now, where do you think you stand in respect of writing about that? I was once talking to a first-class lawn tennis player. Oh, shut up. <laughs> That's enough of that. <laughs> of course, in those days, I was only a tea boy. Uh, it's exactly She's great. She it? doesn't mince her words. No. That was incredible, because I thought War, War is saying, you know, it's four score years and ten, and indeed... That's what Elizabeth Jane Howard notched up in her life and yeah. her career. She published her final novel when she was yeah. 89 years old. So so she's still got time to run. I had the great pleasure to have supper with her once. And she was, um, and I, you know, you don't know at the time, it was, it was a literary dinner in Bath, Andy, just to put mm. it in the context. Mm. Okay, which book do you remember? It was The Light Years. And I remember she was incredibly kind of... She, <laughs> She was rather sort of, she says, I don't really know whether this is what I want to be doing. She said, you know, she was so interesting about, about, she said, I mean, people like it, you like it. I said, yes, I think it's marvellous. She said, well, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the family. I, I I don't know, I might get two or three books out of it, I suppose. Um, and that was, that was obviously the first of the Caslet Chronicles. And at that point she hadn't, she hadn't published Slipstream, but she was just so, she was a brilliant company. And quite naughty and quite gossipy, and was I was of course like you know because it was 1991. I was fascinated about her relationship with Martin and Amos, and she was very, very. Um, she was incredibly. I mean, she was really very, very affectionate and positive and generous about him. Uh, and I, I, it was one of those. You know, there are people you meet in the literary world who you come away with thinking. What an amazing, good human being. And that is exactly how I felt about her. But I, that's why actually reading reading all of this has been quite a revelation because I, I, I had not read outside of the, 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 the Caslet uh, Elizabeth Jane Howard before. And this is amazing. Well, before we go on to something in disguise, maybe that's a good moment to hear from, um, I mean, Martin Amis recalls Elizabeth Jane Howard with great fondness and also says how important she was in his life for, for getting his life together and getting him out and getting him into to university and the rest of it. I felt, as I'm sure my father felt, that we'd been catapulted into high society because she was so worldly in the best sense. She knew how to get things done. She was very organised. And I adored my mother, but she wasn't organised. And Jane was, and that... It, that's a huge difference. Suddenly, things were possible. Holidays, sorties into the West End where everything worked like clockwork. And she was completely unintimidated by the world, although more anxious than she let on. She was basically, I think, an anxious person, but had mastered the social world. She was very good company and she was uh, very witty. For instance, she said, uh, I hate these new glasses. She had glasses with sort of a slight wing on each of the eyepieces. And she said, they make me look like a power-mad cockroach. And she was full of phrases like that. I mean, she was a novelist. One is always astonished when you read a novelist 
by how, how little of their inner life you see from day to day. You see their social being, but you don't see their creative being. So I thought she's a, a deeper lady than I thought, and I thought very strikingly instinctive as a writer in a way she wasn't as a person. Now, I think that is really interesting, again, because that, that idea of her as an anxious person who, who presents a front which, which masks all sorts of turmoil is one of the themes of the psychological writing that, she's so, that we're talking about here today. So it's probably a good moment to move on to something in disguise. Laura, we put up a spoiler warning in 30-foot-high flaming letters. We said to you, I know we did, do not read even the blurb on the back, right? Are you pleased we gave you that advice? Absolutely delighted. Um, it was excellent advice uh, because when you're reading the novel, there is this sense of a kind of creeping unease and there are little things that 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 just make you feel slightly off balance as though you're slightly being tilted somewhere and and then then the novel comes back to center and you 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 keep thinking well I was certainly thinking um given this context well where, where's the Halloween bit going to come in <laughs> at what point am I going to see where this is going um and I want to read a, a section from that but uh, but but a bit later on um, it's it's quite an extraordinary book because when you get to the end you absolutely see how it's been set up and how it has come to that and if only you'd been a slightly more careful reader you'd have seen it coming i don't think that's true i mean i i'm not i'm not disagreeing with you in a in a critical way i think part of the genius of the book is if you don't know what's going to happen you think well i'm in quite a nice uh comedy of manners and then suddenly starts things start sliding downhill. And I can remember saying to Andrew when I first read this book, I don't read anything about it. Don't read anything about it. Because the shock I got near the end of the book, there's a specific chapter I read twice. Did you have the same experience, John? Did you just go, what? I think it's I think it's I really think it's a brilliant book. It's called Something in Disguise. I thought that one of the characters was going to be a fraud. Right. Ah, which and is interesting. There are several characters that could be frauds. Dr. Dr. Seedham is one, but also John, the character who yeah, John Cole. very quickly throws, you know, uh, romances Elizabeth off of. But I just I, I knew that he wasn't a fraud. Do you know why? Go on. I can read you a very short passage that will tell you why. My 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 spidey sense <laughs> told me that he wasn't going to be the one that was going to be yeah. the fraud. Oliver, the brother, asks Elizabeth what John reads. Oh yes, she said, and he says, "A civilized man, not a ghastly specialist for a change." This is Oliver. He said, but seriously, because he meant it and not to hurt her feelings. But she simply picked up a fig leaf and saying, "I think I'll take this moth up with me." When they were on the move again, he asked, "What novels does he read?" Oh, people called Henry Green. Ivy Compton Burnett and Elizabeth yeah. Taylor. They're his three favourites. He tries a new one from time to time, but he says they never seem to be so good. Have you tried them? Oh, he reads them to me in bed sometimes. I really like it, she added, looking nervously at him to see what he thought. Fine, so long as it isn't all you do in bed, he said. And then she stared at him with a mixture of shyness and bonhomie that was, or would be if you weren't her brother, entirely irresistible. It isn't. 
it's a theme through a lot of Elizabeth Jane mm. Howard's books that that char- she has characters who read Elizabeth Taylor novels, isn't it? Can't be. I mean, the book one of one of the books is dedicated to Elizabeth. Yeah, his, Old Girl yeah. Out. Yeah. So you, you you just know you can't have a wrong one who's reading Elizabeth Taylor. She wouldn't. Nobody would push it that far. But also, it's interesting because um, I did want to say that John Cole is very clearly based on Robert Aikman. Ah. And, you know, and, and, you know, when you think about it, the thick glasses, the interest in opera, ah. the very odd relationship with his wife. <laughs> um, and so this is, and also... The appalling daughter. Yeah, then there is also the other, the, the appalling, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 and that's the thing, you see, because the yeah. Aikmans did not have children <laughs> and hated children. Uh, Ray Aikman, uh, Robert's wife, called them wombats. And uh, <laughs> they found them at, and they instilled in Elizabeth Chain Howard a sort of a distrust of children that she felt awful about later in life because she obviously became such a good mother. And she kind of, it's one of the things that she resented the Aikmans for, for turning her against children. Returning to the, the idea of what is in disguise in the title, something in disguise. So the idea is that it might be a blessing in disguise, an extremely ironic blessing, if that's the case, right? But also... I was looking at the reviews of this novel, and it was quite widely reviewed. And what's fascinating is the number of reviews that take, they don't know what they're reading. And I would say The Thing in Disguise is a horror story presented as a quote-unquote woman's novel, which I hasten to add is pretty much exclusively how it was described in every review by men or women in 1969. And I just wanted to share with you a couple of, I mean, this is slightly, on the last episode of Batlist, we read out a Telegraph <laughs> review and that was quite funny. It's comic but, gold. I've got, I've got another Telegraph review, which is, a, which, is a, which is a positive Telegraph review, so The Balance, by Janice Elliott. And I thought this was really interesting. So this was 1969. She says, I have heard Elizabeth Jane Howard's novels described as hot water bottles. That is harsh, perhaps, but there is a kind of woman's novel, of which something in disguise is one, that makes me uneasy. <laughs> They're lovely to take to bed, but like a hot water bottle, they leave you cold by dawn. Yeah, you know, don't open in Glasgow with it, Janice. Um, yeah, yeah, this latest book is one of Miss Howard's best, a truly awful, very funny tale of defeated love and hope. Poor May, says Elizabeth. Poor Alice. Poor everyone. If death doesn't get you, writes Elizabeth Jane Howard, life will. Wow. And similarly, the novel was reviewed by none other than William Trevor. William Trevor said this, Miss Howard parades a fair share of the selfishness, jealousy, cruelty, weakness, and insensitivity with which God has imbued his chosen creatures. Yet she fairly balances the scales of her argument, and her Mm. vision is not unkind. I mean, I don't entirely agree with William Trevor on the last point. I think she's gimlet-eyed. Can I? Is it maybe a good time to read um, the little extract I chose? Because I think it's funny. We've been talking about how funny she is, but also how grotesque it is and how it is possibly there's a kind of unkindness to it as well. Take it away. So, yeah, this is the introduction of... um, the wife of um, somebody that uh, Elizabeth has been invited to cook for. And this is when we sort of first meet her. 
She was altogether like a huge old doll, Elizabeth thought. Even her hair had a very wide parting in it, like doll's hair. And she wore it in a long, permanently waved bob, like Rita Hayworth in ancient films. Mrs. Cole's head and the shoulders of her black crepe dress were showered with dandruff. And well over and above her Chanel number no. five, Elizabeth could detect the odor of cheap raspberry jam that so often accompanies this condition. <laughs> what? I mean, what? The, what? The moment that they were alone, Mrs. Cole's grip on Elizabeth's arm tightened. And just as Elizabeth was going to pull herself away from this rather surprising and horrible person, she said, While he's away, quick, write down her number. I only want to see her. She had let go at last and was fumbling desperately with her bag. You look for me, darling. Any old scrap will do. I just want to give her my love. And for a moment, Elizabeth found herself looking down into the huge, heavily made-up doll's face, whose eyes were of such open agony that she felt her hair prickling with shock. (laughs) She would do anything to stop someone looking like that. The bag, which had seemed quite small was crammed with dirty, broken, spilt things. Loose aspirins coated with brown face powder, a miniature bottle of Gordon's gin, a (laughs) grey elastic sanitary belt, a screwed-up packet which could contain no smokable cigarette, a little Disney-type dog made of pipe cleaners, a chiffon handkerchief with a swans-down puff attached, some cloakroom tickets, pencils, Broken, biro, (laughs) top off, a tube of something that was oozing out of the bottom. It's such a good passage, isn't it? Oh, it's brilliantly read. Brilliant, Andrew. Brilliant. But what what I think is interesting is if you're reading that as quote unquote, if it's 1969 and you're a reviewer and you're reading that as quote unquote a woman's novel, you'll be thinking, what's this stuff? What's this shit? Why? Why this is? What this is? This isn't right. You know, it's really gritty. But people, the way in which people described it as a, like the ending especially, as like a, an unsuccessful genre trick, something she tries to pull off that doesn't work, as if it's kind of like, you know, it's some kind of weird gear change towards the end of the novel that doesn't work. It's so clear that she is working towards something unpleasant, you know, that yes, there is kind of, you know, that so there true. is that under current isn't there of just unease kind of women kind of fitting their lives around kind of domestic obligations and and then that there being something toxic in that that's going to come to a head absolutely it's absolutely right Andrew because then you know that scene is so hilarious when Mrs Cole ends up she ends up face down in her dinner yeah, it's funny, but it's but also you're thinking because she there's a part of you that thinks she is like this because of John Cole. There are things that John Cole does not want to reveal about his life. He doesn't want to reveal certain details about his daughter. He doesn't want to reveal certain details about his wife. He comes across, as you say, as this as a good and as a charmer. But again, there's something in disguise that there's something that he doesn't want to show. I'm going to ask Laura to read a bit in a minute, but I, we've got some very rare extracts of Elizabeth Jane Howard herself reading from this novel, Something in Disguise. And you can choose, panel, which you would rather hear. Would you rather hear 
Elizabeth Jane Howard read about Elizabeth's cat, Claude, or would you rather hear her read a section about mayonnaise? Mayonnaise. I, I mean, Claude is a, is a star in the book. Cla- Claude stars in the book anyway. Let's, let's go with mayo. Right. It was 25 to 8, and the colonel was doling out sparse portions of the salmon trout. What's all this, he said, when he saw the mayonnaise. <laughs> Oliver answered immediately. It is a sauce made of egg yolks and olive oil and flavoured with black pepper and vinegar called mayonnaise. It was invented by a French general's chef at the siege of Mayon, hence its name. How interesting that you should never have encountered it before. The colonel put down his servers and glared steadily at his stepson. May said, Herbert didn't mean that, did you, dear? He meant, what's it doing here, finished Oliver. Ah, well, Liz made it with a bit of help from me. We thought you'd like a sauce with a military background. There was an incompatible silence while the colonel served the fish and handed plates to May for new potatoes and peas. Then he said, I'm all for plain English cooking myself. (laughs) You know, I think she is walking that tightrope between what is funny and what is deeply macabre and and dangerous. And this comes back to the way she represents gender relations all the way through the book. Quite early on, Elizabeth um, describes her stepfather, um, Herbert. She says, um, he gives me the creeps. He ought just to be poor and funny, but he isn't. And Oliver says, well, he is funny. He's a pompous old fool. And Elizabeth says, you're not a woman. You wouldn't understand. And I think that speaks to all of the books we're talking about. But the passage I wanted to read um, is from the Christmas Eve chapter right at the end. Andrew and I were saying earlier today, it's it's a masterpiece of, it could almost be a, a short story, a horror short story. Yeah, it's, it is. It's a brilliant, it would work as a brilliant standalone piece of horror writing. It's incredible. Yeah. So, so May has woken up um, in the middle of the night and discovered that, Um, Herbert was about to bring her a drink. Um, He hasn't done so. Um, She's been feeling very unwell uh, for quite a lot of the novel. Um, So I just want to uh, read a a couple of small moments from, from this. This is when she wakes up. She became awake quite suddenly. One moment her head was on the block and the guillotine knife was coming down with its inexorable force. And the next moment her eyes were open. The alarm clock was ticking away and she was herself in bed with the bedside lamp on. She remembered that she'd been ill and that Herbert was fetching her a drink, that she must have dozed off. As she sat up, she realised that she still felt pretty awful and she looked to see whether she had any water left. And she goes uh, down the stairs and she goes straight to Herbert's study because she saw that the light was on there. It was one of those glaring lights, a naked bulb topped by a shallow glass shade. It did nothing to soften, let alone conceal what she found. Herbert was dead. He seemed to have opened a window just before he died, as his hand was still clenched upon the casement catch, and he lay with his arm, its shoulder and his head upon it, half out of the window. It looked a very odd position, but then she realised that in fact he was jammed there as he'd fallen. The width of his shoulders had stuck in the narrow window frame. The rest of him was sprawled over the low stone window seat and floor. Snow had fallen against the open casement window and his head and clung there, making his white hair look like dirty ivory. And he was so cold to touch that she knew he was dead. She noticed all this without feeling anything, but it seemed to her that everything was happening so slowly 
like people said about films and things, that for all she knew, she might have run into the room, seen all this, and any minute now would give a shriek. It was just that she hadn't got to the shriek. She never got to it. There was more to notice in the same slow, minute and passionless manner. Minute and passionless. How brilliant. Minute and passionless. So, Laura, you picked up there what I think is one of the themes about the horror content of a lot of the stuff we're talking about, which is the relationship between women and men. And after Something in Disguise, she published the short story Mr. Wrong, uh, which feeds directly into this. We don't want to say too much about that. She is uh, married to, happily married for a while, at least, to the novelist Kingsley Amis bringing up, trying to help bring up his children. And um, it would be good to hear, let's hear from Martin Amos again as a kind of witness to the differences between their methods, between between his father's method and Elizabeth Jane Howard's method as a writer. It was a very interesting contrast. Kingsley was a grinder, and no matter how hungover and terrible he felt, he would trudge off fearfully into his study. He confided that, Every day he thought he would lose the knack. But he would go and you know, put his nose to it and he, he would come out at the other end with, with 500 words, 800 words. Jane didn't disappear into her study till the last possible minute. And she would be gardening or cooking or staring out of the window, smoking. And then she would, in a flurry, she would disappear into her study and you'd hear the mad clatter of the typewriter keys, and then she would emerge an hour later, having written you know, twice as much as my father would in a whole day. I liked Mr. Wrong, which was the title story of a collection. A terrifying story about a murderer. Marvelously sustained atmosphere, and very well written in her way. My father used to sort of pick on her grammar a bit, you know, it wasn't textbook grammar, but it was always better than his so-called improvements that he suggested, which were technically correct, but lost that instinctive flow that she had. How, how revealing that is, right? Pick on her grammar, right? <laughs> uh, well, I just wanted to say something that's related to that, and it's from um, the, one of the biographies about when she was writing something in disguise in Texas. Um, I think it's from Slipstream. And she says, so I drove Kingsley in the mornings, went back and worked on my novel, Something in Disguise, then fetched him home for lunch, then drove him back to work, then went to the supermarket before fetching him back again. And so when Martin Amos says, you know, she was kind of, she might be gardening or cooking, it's also the fact that she is looking after Kingsley as well. And to be, to be fair to Martin Amos, Elsewhere, he he has made that yeah. point, I, and we mustn't stitch yeah. him up there. He he he's no, very absolutely. clear That's, to say she was having yeah. to run the house, and for a writer, that yeah. was incredibly difficult for her. Yeah, but I think, but also that is one of the themes of something in disguise, isn't it? It is that of these women who are attending to these petulant, childish men. You've got Alice looking after Leslie in their luxury Spanish-style bungalow. And then you've got May looking after Colonel Herbert at Monk's Close. And one of the things I wanted to add about it that... And you've got Ginny. You've also got Ginny brilliantly. It's one of the best bits of the whole book 
where she kind of looks after Oliver when he's ill and then just slits him up a tree <laughs> and leaves him. And you think, why Why is she? I mean, he completely misreads the being looked after. So she's. it's almost like there's something really interesting in Elizabeth Jane Howard there saying, don't think that because we're doing all this, it's because we love you. Mm. The awful things that happen to Alice and there's this moment at the end where she can't even be bothered to really decide whether it's worth existing or not. And that's the reality of what happens to women who are treated in this way by men who are, on the one hand, incredibly uh, dangerous and calculating, but on the other hand, rather like Herbert. And it's one of the things that um, the character Elizabeth talks about in the novel. She kept, she keeps saying, well, he's, he's rather dull and stupid. What if he's dull and stupid and wicked at the same time? Um, and it just reminded me of a line in Odd Girl Out where there's a character called Anne who has left her first husband um, and she, she thinks to herself, he might have killed me, she kept thinking. Indeed, had she stayed, there was a very good chance that he might just do that by mistake, of course, as he seemed to do most things. There are men here who might just accidentally kill women. Laura, did you think, um, I, I don't know how you felt about this, both Something in Disguise and Odd Girl Out are dated in their setting, right? You know, they're quite kind of 60s, 70s fondue, gowns, good life setting, you know. And yet, psychologically, and the issues you've just been talking about, they're ahead of their time. They don't feel dated at all. In fact, I'm trying to think of other writers who managed to pull off that trick. Where, where it's sort of cheese and wine on the one hand, and on the other hand, terrible anxiety and dread about relationships on the other. Did you find it contemporary? Absolutely. I mean, there's a similar thing going on in De Maurier, but there's a kind of intensity there, and a, um, and so maybe there's something to do with the setting that it that it feels as though you're you're within a particular type of of book, I feel like I'm kind of slightly criticising Demoria here, but there, there is something about Elizabeth Jane Howard where, where it is that something in disguise. You're seeing these men who are in disguise and who don't even often know themselves what they're doing. She writes the Caslick Chronicles. They're massively successful. She becomes a huge bestseller comparatively late in life in the 1990s. She's very much in the wave of Mary Wesley and Joanna Trollope and the publisher makes them look like those books. But in fact, they are dissimilar right and the look sorry picador but the look <laughs> you've put sake. on something in disguise is so inappropriate it's something in disguise i mean it's it's, it's ridiculous <laughs> but maybe it works but anyway, you know for that reason yeah this is a clip from 1987 and again elizabeth jane howard is a successful novelist in her early to mid 60s when this interview takes place. It's for the BBC Ooh. It's in 1987. Ooh. It's with Sally Hardcastle. And I think I'd just like to feed this into the conversation we're having. Do you like men? Yes, I do like men. I think I'm rather afraid of them a lot of the time. That's one of my problems. I wish I didn't, but I think I feel that at my age, I feel uneasy with them because I feel that I'm not a young, attractive woman and... Is that partly because you were very beautiful when you were young? Well, it's, I suppose it's because people took a lot of notice of my appearance, yes. I, don't, I never thought I was very beautiful, but there we are. Uh, I don't want to sound coy about that. Um, that's what people said, so 
But yes, I think I feel perhaps that I'm a bit of a bore, you see. I get on with people I work with quite well, men I work with. I always find that goes very easily and well. But I don't think I see men very much except in that way, except sometimes my friends' husbands or something, you know. When you say afraid of them, what do you mean by that? I mean that I don't feel equal to being taken seriously or something. I don't know what it is. I, I know that with women I find it very easy if I like women, to establish a rapport with them and an intimacy and an evolving relationship. Uh, it may be just that I haven't met very many men in the last few years. I certainly haven't met very many men, you know, who are, as it were, available to meet. <laughs> that may be that, that I have just haven't had enough practice. Wow. That is, that is brilliant, but it's also chilling because it's an interview quite soon after that, the Desert Island Discs interview, that the man who comes into her life, who forms the basis of the story falling, hears and hears her say something very similar to that and decides to seek her out. She publishes a novel in 1999 called Falling. And this is based on, I won't, let's keep this short. And again, we'll try and get away from spoilers, but she was taken in by a con man and in the 1990s. And uh, who, as Andrew says, heard her on Desert Island Discs, recognised a victim and honed in on her via letter and then in person. And she turned that experience into the novel Falling. Now, Laura, had you read this book before? No, I hadn't. Um, and I was absolutely bowled over by it and, and completely terrified by it. It actually genuinely gave me nightmares. I read the first chapter, which is in the voice of um, Henry, who's the con man, um, who she does this brilliant trick where really she's revealing to you from the get-go who this man is. And the hairs on the back of your neck stand up on end and you think, oh yeah, I, I know this guy. This guy's really dangerous. He's something I need to, someone I need to be uh, wary of. I'm not going to fall for this. <laughs> and yet, as the novel goes on, you do and you're drawn in. And his narration in particular, um, it makes you complicit. It's chilling. Henry, apart from being a psychopath, is a, as they mostly are, is an enormous egoist. And he would say I all the time because his world is himself. And and really, all he notices are things that might or do or would affect him. Uh, Daisy is, is a more um, balanced creature in a way, and able. Uh, I, so I wanted her to be she because she's cooler about it in a way. She doesn't her emotional structures there, all right, but she doesn't regard herself as the centre of the universe in the way that Henry does. Henry really is not able to think of anything else. No, I think most psychopaths are afraid of men and dislike women. And I think that, I mean, very generally speaking, I think those are the categories that they fall into. It's why they have no men friends, they are afraid of them. And it's why they despise women who fall for them. I mean, they've just, that, that's how it goes. So, Andrew, there is a thread there, isn't there, between We Are For The Dark, Something In Disguise... And then falling, you know, that is the same writer revisiting territory, but hiding in plain sight. You know, just kind of these men. Yeah, she identifies them as psychopaths at this point. And you can go back and look at something in disguise and look at 
Colonel Herbert and and even look at Leslie and say, yeah, they're the same. They're the same person. They're the same person. It's a horrible thing, I think, to to stumble yeah. upon over a fifty year period. And what's interesting then is also if you go back to three miles up and you see that these men, they might kill somebody by accident because they're incompetent, because they're not able to function by themselves and they're waiting on a woman to come in and cook for them and help them. And in three miles up, it just so happens that the woman who comes in is Sharon, is, is, you know, is, is a figure from the River Styx. But she, that point, when you read all the stories, you realise that those comically inept young men aren't that different from, from, from Henry in Falling. And societal psychopathy, that's the thing, right? It's the guilt by association, if you like, uh, patriarchal guilt by association. Laura, could you, you were just going to read us the beginning of Falling, I think. I would think that would be a nice thing to hear. Yeah, and I th- think it's just worth saying her her inc- incredible fearlessness in deciding that having been through this experience in her own life that she would then inhabit it and recreate it, that is an extraordinary thing. Um, so this is from chapter one and the opening, Henry. She has left me. This last most terrible blow has knocked me out. I don't seem to be able to think about it for long enough to gain the slightest inkling of why this has happened. She was in love with me, I'm sure of that. Or was she simply sexually infatuated? My experience of women, considerable, for I am, after all, over 60, had, I presumed, taught me a good deal about how extraordinarily different they are from most men. I accept myself here, as I feel I've always had an intuitive understanding of the comparatively few women I've been in love with, have known them often better than they've known themselves. I now think that one reason why I've found it difficult to get on with my own sex has been that what I've learned of them has been largely through women. It has been through their confidences, and sometimes simply their responses, that I realised long ago how many of them are mistreated, that that enchanting early awareness of their sexuality and romantic inclination is all too often nipped in the bud. Thus are bred the ice maidens, the termagants, the nymphos, the drab domestic servitors and the hysterically sentimental matriarchs. I blame men for these sad consequences, much as other people blame parents for the delinquent child. It has been my good fortune and naturally my pleasure to undo and heal some of this damage. Indeed, I can honestly say that my greatest joy has come from pleasing a woman in teaching her to inhabit her own body with pleasure and pride. This cannot be achieved by mere sexual prowess. I have no way of and indeed no interest in measuring my own against that of any other man. It comes from that mixture of affection, cherishing and loving that cannot be assumed, but once present needs constant expression. Women need not only to be loved, they need to be told so. I believe George Eliot had something to say about that. Oh, it's it's terrifying, though, right? It's absolutely terrifying. It is terrifying. It's kind of Hilary Mantel beyond black terrifying, isn't it? Well, Hilary Mantel is a huge fan of um, of Elizabeth Jane Howard, and that's one of the things I wanted to say that she kind of she gets it. There's a piece that she wrote for the Guardian on Elizabeth Jane Howard where she actually says, you know. Of course, she's known for the Cazalet Chronicles, but the thing about her is the grimmer it is, the better it is. Can we give the last words to 
uh, Jane, as she called it, Elizabeth Jane Howard. This is a, a clip from an interview in 2004 about, and she's talking about falling here with Eleanor Wachtel. And uh, I think this is a good, a good note to finish on. I, I think technically it's my, probably my best novel from the craft point of view. It's quite enclosed and taut. I, I mean, it was, I really wanted to write it. I, I enjoyed writing it, actually. I mean, I haven't, I've, it is a novel. I haven't precisely described this person whom I knew. I mean, it, a lot of things are the same, but and, and the, the general direction of things is the same, but I, I was able to make what I wanted of it. I, and so, some of his past was more murky than I, I've described in my book, actually. But a friend writer who lives near me, called Louis de Bernier, said, well, at least you've got a novel out of it. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's quite true, that's what happened. And it somehow made the whole thing the right size. Enclosed and taught. That's what, there it is. There's the description of what we've been talking about today, enclosed and taught, whether it's three miles up or something in disguise or falling. And like you said, Laura, the bravery, the sheer, the sheer steeliness of taking that experience late in life and turning it into that book. Well, there goes Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and that is where we must pause. Huge thanks to Andrew and Laura for returning once more to lead us into the darkness, to Nikki Birch for being both sound and light when all others fail, and to Unbound for the sherry and fags. <laughs> you give for the mayonnaise. You can download all <laughs> you can download all 148 previous episodes plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm and we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash blacklisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising and your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for less than the price of a double helping of potted shrimp at Herbert's Awful <laughs> Club, Locklisters get to two extra Locklisters a month. Our <clears throat> extra podcast, our flat in town, where the three of us cook lobster, drink puy fuise, and enthuse about the books, films, and TV and music that have kept us sane in the weeks previous. Lock listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. This week's batch roll call is Dara McCabe, Roberta Munro, Thomas Robinson, Helen Legg, Susanna Escobar, Kevin Rennie, ZP Lou, Lisa Doherty, David Hughes, Neil Crawley, Sally Bowdler, Dan Porter. So uh, thanks very much for listening, everyone, if indeed you have. We hope you enjoyed the book if you went back to read it. (laughs) Laura, is there anything you would like to add on this subject or on Halloween or anything to say before we go? Uh, Just a huge thank you for having me, Elizabeth Jane Howard, as absolutely one of my favourite novelists now. Someone commissioned (laughs) me to write a book about her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Macmillan, if you're listening... And finally, Andrew, as is traditional, all long-term <laughs> listeners will know the point to which this whole show, these whole six years have been leading. Andrew, if Something in Disguise by Elizabeth Jane Howard were a Gene Kelly film, which Gene Kelly film would it be? It's always fair weather. Because... Oh! <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Magnificent. Because it is the film begins as a regular stripe of generic MGM musical filmmaking. But underneath and throughout, there is a busy underground stream of anxiety. And it's about men and men's violence and men's unhappiness and men's ineptitude. And there's a toxic subtext running throughout the film. And then in the end, it ends with the most unexpected gear change that many at the time thought was ridiculous. <laughs> I'm in awe of... Magnificent. Magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. Well, listen, thanks very much for listening, everybody. We hope you have yeah, a spooky Halloween. Thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you. Time. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Nikki. Brave, brave Nikki Birch there. <laughs> the line. Thank you and see you next year. <laughs> Bye. Bye. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.